You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. So um, we are going to jump into our sermon series, and um, we've been walking through Revelation. I want to say this. I want to reiterate this again. I want to reiterate this again, so perk up. I am not saying as we work through Revelation, that there are no future implications for the book of Revelation. That is not what we're saying. We're not saying that everything that's written in the book of Revelation has already happened. What we are saying as we work through this book is that my fundamental premise and how we interpret it is that we cannot understand what it means for us until we understand what it meant for the people it was written to. That's what I'm trying to get to. There's all kinds of conversations outside of that to have with Revelation, but for us, our task since week one has been to try to understand Revelation in its context so that we could begin to have some talking points for how we apply it in our own life. That's been our agenda. And so that doesn't mean that there are no future events that we should be paying attention to. That does not mean that. What it means is we need to understand what it meant for them so that we can apply what's called authorial intent, what the writer meant to write down, to our own lives. Does that make sense? Now, with that in mind, we are going to try to tackle Revelation 15 and 16 today. And it's another one of those things about um, we had seven seals. Now we're going to have seven bowls. And we're only going to read Revelation 15. I got good news for you. It's a whole chapter, but it's only eight verses. (laughs) So we can survive. Um, I had somebody tell me that, you know, it's like, it's like we read some of the verse, but we're not doing a lot of exposition. And the problem with it is we read the section and then we've got to step back and unpack so many things, not only what's already been attached to all of this stuff, but also what we would like to see understood from it. And so it just is, it's this tension that we live in of how much do we get diving, diving, diving into the text and how much of it do we talk about in the abstract theoretical world. Today, we're going to have to tackle another one of those concepts called Armageddon. What is Armageddon and where is it and how is it and what does that mean? So we're going to tackle that, hopefully. Um, I'm just hoping that I make it to my nap today. (laughs) Somebody doesn't be like, I've had enough of your revelation. Um, So let's jump into Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for which them the wrath of God is finished. And and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses. Now, think Think Bible for just a minute. Where do we see the song of Moses? The song of Moses happens after the Red Sea. It's connected to the deliverance of God's people from an oppressive empire that was keeping them slaves, and God acted on them through plagues and delivered them. 
Maybe we ought to pay attention to see if there aren't a few more connections there. And the servant of God in the song of the Lamb saying, what in the world is that? That was the most incredible thing I've ever just seen in my life. <laughs> my life is a country song. I'm just telling you. Like, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Will not, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked at the sanctuary of the tent of witness, and heaven was open. Now, what is the tent of witness? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? It's the tabernacle. You get a gold star. Well done, Amanda Boswell. It's the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the tent of witness. Why does that matter? Because the tent of witness is where Moses met with God while they're in the desert. More Exodus imagery. Now let's see if we can see it anywhere else. Like any one of these things by themselves would be, okay, that's interesting. You put it all together, we've got to pay attention to it. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen which, by the way, is the, the garbs of the priest, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Which, by the way, raises a question, nobody gets to enter the sanctuary until the bulls are finished. So are God's people taken out of what's about to endure, about to happen? It doesn't seem so. So let's, let's look at these bulls. I want to bullet point them. We don't have to read all of Revelation 16, but I want to connect the bulls of wrath. Number one, sores. Is that a plague? Yes. Yes, it is. We have more Exodus imagery. Number two, blood in the sea. And number three, blood in the springs and rivers. Is there a plague where God turns water into blood? Are, like, are we, are we clicking yet? Like, we got to pay attention to this. Number four, sun scorches people with fire. Is that a plague? No. <laughs> but it's anchored to another Old Testament passage about God's deliverance. Number five, darkness. Is darkness a plague? Yes. yes. Yes, it is. Number six, Euphrates dries up and frogs. Are frogs a plague in Exodus? Yes, they are. Number seven, thunder, rain, and earthquakes. These are all connected to God's people being delivered through the plagues, not from the plagues. We put God on display because of how we endure these difficult times, which ultimately leads to God's people becoming a powerful nation. But it's not about escaping these things. It's about how we weather them. And that's important. Now, every time 
that there are earthquakes or hurricanes or thunder or rains. Like, people are like, is this, is this the fulfillment of Revelation? Then we've had a few recently, and it's been an amazing thing to watch. You know, if, for those of you that have been with us for a little while, you know that uh, a year ago we launched a church or helped launch a church in Houston, Texas, real life Texas. And they've been hammered by the hurricane there. And we were able, because of your faithfulness, and this is pretty awesome, we were able to give $5,000 to help with hurricane relief there. And they had families that had their homes under nine feet of water, like multiple families that were in, in uh, centers that were so full, they had to shut them down and move them to another center, move them to another. Like, it was crazy what was going on there. Uh, there's actually, on our Facebook page, on the Real Life on the Palouse Facebook page, there's a thank you video from Real Life Texas um, showing, sharing. Uh, so jump on our Facebook page today after the service. Don't do it right now because I wouldn't be able to preach. But um, <laughs> we all want that. Uh, so jump on after the service and uh, take a look at that video. It just talks a little bit about all the stuff that they've been able to do because of the generosity of God's people. It's been amazing. And that's one of the things that when you give here, that's one of the things that we're able to support because of that. And so that's really awesome. Um, but, you know, Florida, since 1850, Florida has had 119 hurricanes. Right? And interestingly enough, only the last one was caused by climate change. So there's that. Um, apparently, <laughs> that's funny. I don't care who you are, that's funny. Uh, so, but we all, you know, every time that there's this big, this big destruction, is this revelation? Is it? Well, like, I mean, you could take a look at it, but I don't think that the first readers of Revelation were sitting there going, man, in 2017, there's going to be a series of hurricanes, and I'm really concerned about that. Like, I, don't, I just don't see that. Could we apply it there? Uh, you, you know, if you need the plagues to be literal plagues and you need them to really happen in your society, you can have it. But for me, I don't think that first century Christians reading Revelation were going to be all that concerned about what was happening in 2017. I don't think that they were. And so for us, I think we need to understand this a little bit differently. There's a couple of things that I want to talk about based in this series of suffering. We've been talking about suffering and persecution and all that stuff throughout this series because the book of Revelation is really an invitation for us to suffer and be persecuted well because the word of our testimony tells people a particular story about who our God is. It's hard for us to connect to suffering. That's hard for us because we don't. And even in our own world, when we see slavery in India or when we see um, 20 Christians get their heads cut off by ISIS, we look at that and go, that is so sad for them. But what we have to wrestle with is that when the body of Christ suffers, the whole body suffers. If somebody dropped a big rock on your foot, your hand wouldn't say, gosh, it sucks to be a foot. <laughs> no, if somebody drops a big rock on your foot, the whole body suffers. And it's time for the body of Christ to engage global suffering in a way that makes a difference. 
That's why international justice mission is so important today, because the invitation that they're giving us is to make a difference in real problems in the world. Now, here's the deal. I don't believe that the answer for the church is to throw money halfway around the world and let our backyard go to hell. That is not what I'm saying. I think that we should open our eyes big enough to be willing to engage suffering wherever it's found. And I'll be honest with you, I've seen people with bank accounts full of money that are absolutely miserable. Because the brokenness that drives them, it's this, for some people, they, they get wounded in their life and they go get a job and make tons and tons and tons of money. For some people, they get wounded in their life and they go drink alcohol. Same brokenness, but it drove a very different result. And we look at one and go, look at that person, they're successful. Nope, they're wounded. And we've got to be willing to deal with suffering wherever we see it whether that's at the top of the mountain or in the marsh pit. It doesn't matter whether that's in India or in our backyard or somewhere else. We've got to be willing to deal with it and not disconnect from it and say that's a problem for them. Because if they're part of the body of Christ, it's my problem. And I want to invite you to this truth. It is not... Suffering is not an opportunity for us to say, we're going to give money to the church so that the church can take care of it. The church will do its part. But it's an invitation for me as a human being to engage it. I don't want to be part of a, willing, a winning organization. I want to be a Christian who's faithfully engaging the world with the mission of the God that invited me to partner with him to help restore what sin broke. That matters. We do it collectively. Absolutely, we do it collectively, but we also do it individually. Like, we have an individual obligation to that. And so it's not about, I'm going to give money and then critique how the church deals with it. It's, I'm going to be engaged in the solution, okay? Now, that being said, I want to step out of that for a minute and talk about this uh, perspective of Armageddon because Armageddon is in chapter 16 and it's in the sixth bowl. The, Armageddon is ultimately this place where in Revelation all the armies of the world gather and there's this epic battle at the end of time. There's this epic battle with all the world's armies and so I want to take a look at that. What is Armageddon and, and where does it come from and, and why that place and is it even feasible that this could be a place where a global battle could happen. So in order to do that I got to step back a little bit from the story and give us a picture of what's going on in the ancient world. So I want to show you a map and we're going to try to move through this quickly. This, uh, there you go. Thank you. So this green stripe here, does anybody know what that's called? Huh? Fertile crescent. Good job. It's the fertile crescent. So this is the stripe in the ancient world where life can exist because there's water and they can grow food and it's all, it's all there. Okay, so in this middle section here where it's labeled Saudi Arabia and Jordan and all that, that is this massive desert and you can't cross it. Now, there are um, stories of races that they used to have with these horses where they do it. Have you seen the movie Hidalgo with Viggo Mortensen? You know, all you ladies are like, oh, Viggo. Oh, my goodness, Viggo. Whatever. Uh, he ain't so bad. Uh, the, that's a story about the race across this desert, an older movie, the movie The Black Stallion. You remember that movie? 
That's a movie about the race across this desert. And so that's the, this, it can be crossed, but like there's no normal person that would do it. Like it's an extreme event. Uh, you would never take a camel train of 500 camels across this desert. You can't. And so what they did was Babylon has all this stuff that Egypt needs. And Egypt has all this stuff that Babylon needs. And they want to trade back and forth. So they develop these trade routes up the Tigris and Euphrates River. They turn uh, towards the Mediterranean Sea of Syria. And they turn south and head towards Egypt. Now, I want to show you another map. Next picture. This is uh, another map of the ancient world. And you see kind of right in the middle that phrase promised land. That's Israel. Israel is the strategic location for the entire trade route to work. And the reason is because in Israel, there is a 10 mile wide by 60 mile long strip of land that the entire trade route must function through. If they don't have that strip of land, the entire route falls apart. Now, think about this. Uh, I gotta change my metaphor because I used Target first service and I had some, some of our younger parishioners that came to me and said, you know, Target doesn't have turnstiles anymore. <laughs> but Disneyland does. <laughs> All right, so let's change the metaphor. Let's say that Disneyland opened up a new epic ride and we all are gonna go ride this ride. It's amazing. Like Disneyland is the world headquarters of happiness, okay? So we're gonna go there. And out in the parking lot are all these people that are standing out there waiting to get into Disneyland to enjoy the world headquarters of happiness, right? now. If I'm just Joe Blow, how do I profit economically from this? Okay, somebody's phone's ringing. Turn it off. What is that? Huh? Okay. Welcome. Welcome to the world of attention deficit. What was I talking about? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, my life's a country song. Um, how do I profit from this? I have some options. I can own Disneyland. Not really an option for most of us here. Um, I can somehow figure out how to own the people, but that's kind of what this day is against. All I have to do, if I want to profit from this, is control the turnstile. If I can control the turnstile, then I tax people as they come in to experience the ride. Does that make sense? The turnstile is Israel. If I control the turnstile of this entire trade route, I control the entire trade route, which is why Solomon is so rich. It's why Herod is so rich, because they found a way to control this little bitty piece of land. It, they don't have to control the whole thing. They control this little bitty piece. They control the whole trade route. And so they tax people, and taxes make them rich. Now, how much do they tax people? Much as they want, because this is the only way for people to get from Egypt to Babylon. 
So Israel becomes strategically important in the ancient world, and it's why all of these world powers want to come in and fight for Israel. It's why it's such an important piece of real estate, because it controls the whole world. Controlling the entire trade route in the ancient world is the equivalent of one person controlling the entire oil industry in today's world. That's how important it is. Now, in Israel, there's one particular location that actually makes this entire strip of land, this 10 mile by 60 mile strip of land work, okay? Let me show you a picture. This is Megiddo. Megiddo today, it's built on a, on a little mountain, uh, a little mount, and uh, it's called Mount Megiddo. And at Megiddo, this is the guard city for where the trade route enters in to the, to the northern end of this 10 mile by 60 mile strip of land and turns south. So if you control this city, you control the entire turnstile, which means you control the entire trade route. This one city unlocks everything. It's that important. 29 layers of civilization here. It's been conquered, knocked down, and rebuilt 29 times, dating all the way back to like the mid-2000s BC. It's just, it's just been there forever because this is the place. If you're going to control and make money in this area, this is the place that you have to control. You have to control it. Let me show you another picture. This is the ruins of Megiddo today. If you come with me to Israel and you hike fast, we'll go and see it. Uh, it's one of those places that's always on the bubble for me. And so if people can hike quickly, we get there. If they don't hike quickly and they take longer to be in other places, then we don't make it. Um, so uh, it's one of those places. But this is the ruins today. So let's look at the next picture. This is the Jezreel Valley. When we talk about biblical Armageddon, this is the place that we're talking about. If you look at the far right, what you'll see is Har Megiddo. That's Mount Megiddo off to the right-hand side. That's where Megiddo is. And the trade route comes, if you look in straight away in the middle, the, the mountains kind of form a valley there. The trade route comes right through there. That is where the every, everybody comes through there. So what you might imagine is every army that invades Israel comes through there. There's always battles here. Now, if, what I want to point out here is you have the Kishon Brook down in the bottom. What, why the Kishon Brook? Why is that important? That's where Elijah killed 450 prophets of Baal. You have Nazareth. Why is Nazareth important? It's where Jesus grew up. You have Mount Tabor in the back. It's a little bump in the back. Uh, Mount Tabor is the traditional side of the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, I disagree with them. Come with me to Israel. I'll take you to the right place. But that's a important part. There's Chatzor, which is mentioned in the Bible. Shunem or Nain is where Jesus and Elisha raised the widow woman's son. It happened there. Um, Beit Shan is straight down at the bottom of the valley. It's 11 miles away. Um, and then Mount Gilboa, which is off to the right-hand side. You can see it there. That's where Saul is killed, King Saul. You are literally looking. I'm not exaggerating to you. You are literally looking at over 150 Bible stories in this one photo. Like this place. And there's all these battles. Like it, this, this valley, because it's a staging point for the control of the whole place, this is a place of epic conflict. This is the place. Now, the reason why we call it Armageddon is because the Hebrew word for mount is the word har. So Mount Megiddo in Hebrew is har Megiddo. 
And if you take Harmageddon from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to German to English, it gets translated Armageddon. Do you see how we got there? Now, here's a question. It's about 4.7 miles wide, about 11 miles long. Is it big enough for all the armies of the entire world to fit? No, it's not. Now, if you need a literal Armageddon where they all come and they fight, and if you need that, that's okay. But I don't believe that when John was thinking about the global armies all uniting in one place, that he was thinking about a literal battle. He was thinking about a place that is known for conflict and strategic importance. Now, you do with that what you will, but what I want to keep pulling us back to is real people, real place, real time. These are real people in a real place at a real time. They really understand certain things when they're said certain ways. And, and I want to I wanna fight to understand that. Now, you do whatever you want to do with Megiddo and Armageddon and all that stuff, because that's really not the thrust of the sermon. I just feel like it's the opportunity for us to talk about it. The thrust of our sermon today is about the fact that this suffering bowls, we disregard it just like we disregard global suffering today because we don't know what it means to suffer. And we don't understand how important it is for the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. That's what I want to talk about. We are God's voice, his hands, his feet in the world. And if we don't somehow own that responsibility well, we do the reputation of God a huge disservice in this world. And so with that in mind, what I want, we're going to move towards the Lord's table because uh, we've got to get rolling. We're going to move towards the Lord's table. Um, if you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. Okay? So while they're doing that, I want to do a couple of things. I want to read a passage of Scripture, and then I want to work through a couple of implications. And the implications are, these are things that I hope that we take away from today. That as we walk out of here, things that we remember. Now I want to read Amos chapter 5. And I want to read Amos chapter 5, uh, verses 21 to 24, out of the message. And I always get like, ooh, the message, ooh, you're so edgy, right? Like so progressive. Um, I like the way he words this because it's incredibly appropriate, and if you do your word study work, he does a good job translating here. There's some places where I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but this place, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it, and it ties into what we're saying here. Here's what it says. I can't stand your religious meetings. These are people who were going to church. They were probably even raising their hands in worship. They were praying. They were enjoying their festivals. But they had something missing there. What was it? I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes. Can I get a witness? Uh, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. I love the way he words that. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? 
I want justice, oceans of it. This word justice is the word mishpat. It's distributive justice. I want oceans of you giving your life to make sure that everyone has enough. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Like if we never met in church again and gave our lives to making other people's lives better in the name of God, we advance the kingdom. It doesn't have to be an either or. But it's time for the church to wake up and understand a couple of implications. Number one, their suffering is our suffering. We don't get to disregard it because it didn't hit in my living room. Their suffering is our suffering. Number two, Jesus followers are called to engage suffering wherever it's found. And I think those who put God on display well don't shrink back. They don't wait for the church to create a program to do it, even though the church creating a program to do it is a great way for us to get involved. And we will hopefully partner together as a community in working on doing some really cool things. But it's a personal obligation as a Christian, not as a church attendee. As a person who calls myself a Christian, I am personally obligated to engage the suffering of the world. Not to look at it and go, man, that must be hard. Man, that must be tough for them. I'm so sad. Eat my cheeseburger. There's nothing wrong with eating cheeseburgers. Daddy likes some cheeseburgers. But you can't cheeseburger your way into heaven. We've got to take the suffering of the world seriously. And so if you want to get involved, I want to remind you again. If you want to get involved with IJM, uh, Sarah will be out at the connection desk. You'll see her out there. She's wearing a cute little skirt and blouse. And just say, I'm looking for Sarah. And she'll go, I'm Sarah. She'll be out there. Um, And so... She's out there available to answer questions for you with IJM. And then um, if there's other ways that we need to get involved in suffering around the world and and even in our own backyard, do you know that Spokane, which is not far away from here, is a huge sex trafficking hub? Like maybe we should do something about that. I'm so thankful that Jesus in laying his life down, which is what communion reminds us of, didn't come to God and go, man, look at the suffering of the world. We should pay somebody to fix that. His model was to actually engage it. And so this reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood to shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And Lord, I want to just, 
I just want to say thanks for the opportunity to partner with you in truly restoring some very broken places. So we ask for wisdom and for insight, God, for conviction as we wrestle through what you would want our role to be. It feels overwhelming to try to take it all on. So Lord, give us real clear next steps as we figure out how to make a difference in the suffering in the world. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.